1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
4: And my name is Julie Douglas.
3: Julie, I- I'm growing concerned. I'm growing concerned for our dear mailbot, Arnold.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, we haven't been calling him over a lot recently, we've, mm-hmm. we've, we've, our own schedules have been crazy. We've been uh, covering some uh, some topics that have gone a bit long here and there. And uh, for, for various reasons, he's, he just remains over in his corner. The mail is piling up around him. Mm-hmm. And I'm beginning to notice some some unhealthy um, behavior in this uh, secluded uh, mechanoid.
4: Are you talking about the droppings?
3: Um, yeah, that's one thing that's happening, yes.
4: Yeah. And he's resting a little bit. He is. Yeah. So we're going to take the oil can out today, and we're going to have a little bit of listener mail that has has built up and and we're gonna make Arnie feel a little bit better yeah, I think in the process. I think so. And
3: and and as a byproduct we'll also be able to, to catch up on some uh some great listener mail. We receive so many great uh responses on Facebook, through through our email address. Most of it is wonderful and yet we're so busy and there's so the time is so limited we don't really get to respond as much as we'd like. We don't get to share as much on the podcast as we would like.
4: So today's the day. We are going to cover this listener mail, and let's bring on over Arnie.
3: Hey there, Arnie. What have you got for us? Uh, what have you got for us today? You got some good ones that you've been uh, building up? All right. Fair enough. Uh, this first one comes to us uh, from Facebook, and it comes from listener Justin. Justin says, hey, Robert and Julie, just wanted to say that I really enjoyed your Ouroboros podcast today. However, I'm extremely disappointed that a couple of fantasy nerds like you, or at least Robert seems to be, Mm -hmm. didn't mention Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series. If you haven't heard it, there are 14 books, about 500 to 1,000 pages each, so these books are a significant investment in time, but I couldn't recommend them more. The Ouroboros plays a strong role, being both the symbol of the Wheel of Time, which drives this fantasy world through repeating ages, and the symbol of the main magic users throughout the novels. Again, the series is a major investment of your time, but the payoff is well worth it if you guys haven't read them yet i would highly recommend it thanks for the great podcast you have no idea how much it helps uh, my commute and the more mundane parts of my day justin so there you go yeah the wheel of time it's a book series i've, I've long been aware of but uh as time goes by i feel like I, I have i'm i'm ever um against the idea of engaging in yet another um long and or unfinished fantasy series.
4: I know didn't you feel like that you've got so much stuff in, in the way of books or even uh like television series yeah. or movies that are stacking up
1: there.
3: Yeah. It's like a, I I know it's great, I hear it's great, but I don't know that I have time in this lifetime for it. We'll see. Maybe I'll maybe I'll catch a prison sentence at some point and then I can throw myself a wheel of time.
4: Oh you're but, not wishing that upon yourself. No, right? I'm not <laughs> wishing
3: it at myself it's it's a consolation prize. It's like oh somehow I wound up in prison but at least there's Wheel of Time.
4: Uh, okay. All right. So I don't. I hope that you have some other way of obtaining time. But the uh, Arbaras, in case uh, you guys out there did not catch that one, that was about the uh, snake biting its tail episode. And that was. Uh, we covered the symbolic aspects of that.
3: Yeah, I was. That's one of those episodes where briefly into the research, we didn't think there was enough there to constitute a full episode. We're mm-hmm. like, maybe there's just not enough here. This is more of a. A blog post, but then we then we we doubled down, we researched some more, and we started finding all these crazy uh, scientific or or philosophical uh, aspects of the subject matter.
4: Yeah, and even a, a robotic aspect of it as well. Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's hear from Frances. She posted this on Facebook. Says. I loved this episode, though when I tried explaining the mother having her nephews to some friends at a get together, they thought I had been doped into some urban legend. Where can I get my hands on more evidence so I can score my told you so moment? Well, Francis, thank you for for letting us know about that. Um, it is not an urban legend, but it has all the elements of it. Right. You have this mother yeah. who had three sons, two of which had been tested to see if they might be a good donor uh, for her and found that genetically they did not match. And so it was found that she actually absorbed her twin, which means that the twin's cellular material was passed on to two of her sons. So, all right, there's a study by Margot Kreskel, and it is called Disputed Maternity Leading to Identification of Tetragametic Chimerism. So anybody else out there who, who pulled this off at a cocktail party, and you need some backup. That is the name of the study.
3: There you go. Print it out. Bring it. Pass, with it, you. Around. Yeah. <laughs> pass it around. Yeah, because
4: everybody wants to read a ten-page paper yeah. at a cocktail. It's party. an
3: instant conversation starter, and if you're looking to uh, you know score some romance, no better way.
4: Yeah, and don't let anybody skip down to the summary. That's yeah, just cheating. No. Yeah. I also wanted to mention, and I mentioned this in our last episode, the episode of Microchimera was suggested by listener Shauna, and I wanted to thank her again because I don't think that I mentioned this in the actual episode, and she is the reason why we can all sit back and think about these dastardly things uh, going on in a cellular league, whether or not maybe one of a sibling cells are dwelling within us. So thank you, Shauna.
3: Cool. All right. Well, uh, Arnold, what else do you have for us? Yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, that sounds like a good one. Let me see that one.
4: Oh, Arnold.
3: <laughs> this one comes to us uh, from Camilla, and uh, this is a response to our episode on staring. And uh, Camilla um, works in China uh which which uh, actually Camilla was actually uh, uh, really helpful uh for me right before uh my wife and I traveled to China uh on our adoption trip because I got to run a couple of questions uh past her about you know sort of cultural things uh before we left so Camilla writes in and she says great stuff on the staring episode i love i loved julie's stare down with a 7 year old mainly because i'm guilty of that myself as you know, living in small town China, particularly small town with very few foreigners, I got a lot of stares for being not Chinese. Not only stares, but pointing, commenting, people nudging each other and pointing out that there's a leawa on the bus. I'm sure I completely butchered the Mandarin. Uh, Well, I'm not even sure it's Mandarin because I'm not sure what part of China she's in, but I'm sure I butchered it. She continues, after after the novelty wears off, it can get quite annoying. So one day on the bus, this seven-year-old turns completely around and starts to stare at me. We're not talking about uh, subtle here. She was less than a foot away and was looking straight at me for at least two minutes, which seems like a very long time when you're being stared at. <laughs> Usually I would just ignore it. Uh, they've probably never seen a foreigner before, so let them soak it up. But that persistent stare is just too innervating. So I decided to let her know how it feels. I start staring back, and almost immediately she backs down. I could see in her eyes how uncomfortable she felt. And I go out on a limb here and say that that's how most people feel like when they're being stared at. Very uncomfortable like your personal space has been invaded even from a distance. So there you go. That's, uh, that's some that's some interesting insight into uh, the experience of staring. Um,
4: I also feel better about, about uh, staring having to stare with off with a seven-year-old. So thank you, Camilla.
3: You know, and I, I knew from Camilla and just from general reading of, uh, prior to our travel to China that there would be a lot of stairs, mm-hmm. particularly when we were in Nanning, uh, where there there are certainly foreigners, huge cities, seven million people, I believe. But there are fewer foreigners, and so we we did receive a lot of stares there, and it's just sort of culturally more okay mm-hmm. to stare at uh, strange giant Westerners uh, with blonde hair. Uh, and at first, it it was it was okay. You know, I kind of I knew why what was going on. I knew culturally what the deal was. So I'm like, all right, it's fine. I'm I'm an outsider. I look weird. I'm only going you're a tall weirder. outsider. Yeah,
4: with I don't know, were they bluey eyes?
3: Greeny, greeny Bluey, greeny,
4: and then kind of blondish hair, so... Yeah. Yeah. So,
3: and, in, 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 you know, my wife, too. We both got a lot of stares. But early on, we you know, it was fine. We, you know, we realized what was happening. But as the trip uh, progressed, I found that it kind of grated on me more and more. Not mm-hmm. that I was, like, actively getting angry about it, like, stop staring at me or anything, but I just... I felt more and more like I wanted to hide somewhere or go somewhere where people wouldn't be staring, even though it's not like I didn't feel safe. I I felt safe the entire time I was in Mm -hmm. China. But I, I, it was, it just kind of begins to irritate you more and more. Not even irritate you, just make you feel.
4: Did you feel objectified, like sort of like less than human or?
3: No, it just, well, maybe in a sense, like in a, in a, in an unconscious sense like you just reached the point where you just don't want to be stared at anymore mm-hmm. like for for just non-formulated reasons you're just like i i just want to be me and be privately me somewhere and and not looked at as an outsider
4: so when you got back to the states though did you were you so used to being stared at were you like hey what what's going on i'm right here guys
3: i don't i guess it's it was in a way it's nice to be on marta and just be ignored i don't know it's just nice to be ignored, but I, it was a great ex- experience too. And to realize, to, to help realize what it's like for people who get stares everywhere. Mm-hmm. People who you know are either say unnaturally tall, unnaturally short, or mm-hmm. there's something about them. Uh, you know, maybe they're just you know the racially the racial inversion of my situation, mm-hmm. where they you know they find themselves you know surrounded by a bunch of uh, you know. Tall, pale, white people, and it's mm-hmm. and and they are the outsider, and right. it feels weird. So, so it was a great experience in that it, it does give me more insight. I, I, I feel into into what it's like in other people to be choose. the other, yeah. yeah. But as Camilla suggested, my my, my wife uh, a, a few different times said that she would just stare back at someone who was staring at her. Mm-hmm. She's like, well, if they're staring at me, it gives me full license to stare at them. But I was always too awkward to do that. It's like like because I, I know they don't they don't actually want to be stared at, so I'm not gonna. Give them what I'm feeling, you know.
4: And then you have to engage in their souls if you do that. Yeah,
3: I don't want to make eye contact with anyone anyway. So, All
4: right. um, We get another email on staring. This is from Vic. And he said, I enjoyed your recent podcast on the science of staring. As a poker player, you can imagine that there's quite a bit of staring as a group of guys sit around a small table playing cards for hours on end. Many of these guys posturing to be the alpha male at the table. Uh After yeah, after either having made a bet or perhaps facing a bet, players exhibit a variety of stares. Some stare blankly at the cards in the middle of the table, trying not to give away any tells, while others choose to stare down their opponent. While their conscious minds try to determine if they're beat or being bluffed, their unconscious emotional minds are always on the lookout for hints as well. After listening to your podcast, I tried this little experiment. I had a particularly strong hand, and on the river once all the cards had been dealt, I raised my opponent. He had the most chips at the table and was embracing the alpha male role at the table that afternoon. While deciding whether to call my raise or fold, he stared at me. I was looking at the center of the table, trying not to give off any signals that might help him, but I decided that I would stare back at him, but only for a second or two, and then only very meekly. I looked into his stare, looked away, and then back, and quickly back at the center of the table. Certainly an alpha male would not want to be bluffed out of a sizable pot. He may have, in fact, logically come to the correct conclusion that he was beat, but not wanting to back down from what may have appeared as a weaker stare from his opponent, he called. He called his hand, I suppose, right? Mm -hmm. What I found most interesting was that as he was pushing his chips into the pot, he actually said, I know I'm beat, but I just have to call. I showed him my hand, and he quietly folded his cards. I may continue to use the staring tactic from time to time when facing who I perceive as the alpha male at the poker table when I'm holding what I think is the winning hand. Thanks to Stuff to Blow the Mind for this valuable bit of science, by the way, I vote no... To abbreviating the as th, keep up the great work.
3: I love it. See, you listen to the podcast, mm-hmm. and it improves your gambling. It improves your <laughs> ability. <laughs> well, and, and on a, in a more, on a less, uh, you know, hilarious uh, uh, sense, it uh, it helps you better navigate the world because you're a little more aware about what's going on.
4: I love that he was yeah. like, I- "I'm identifying the alpha male. Mm-hmm. I'm going to trick him into this sort of weak stare. Yeah, and I'm going to take all of his money."
3: The the alpha male stare thing is weird and is and is the worst like i would i far prefer the outsider stare than the alpha male stare i certainly didn't get any weird alpha male stare stuff going on when i was in china
4: as a side note i recently saw that there was a study that said uh, that men with wider faces Hmm. appear to be more aggressive but i wonder if that's a staring thing like if it's the staring just seems more pronounced huh anyway it's something that uh i shall check into
3: all right, we're going to take a quick break. and When we come back, we're going to have some more listener mail here with our robot friend. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: All right, we're back.
3: Um, what else do you have for us, Arnold? I know you have uh, you have a lot of mail there. Do you have some some other uh, tantalizing bits of correspondence to share? Oh, here's one. Uh, this one comes to us from uh, Jesse. Uh, Jesse's uh, responding to um, uh, some of our hell-related content that has come out over the years, and we've done quite a bit of it. A lot of that's my fault, but we've uh, we've talked about the science of hell. We've talked about the problem of hell for more of a uh, Philosophical, um, sociological standpoint. And of course, we did that whole series on the seven deadly sins. So, hell pops up uh, frequently, and uh, I often talk about Dante. So, Jesse writes in from Sydney, Australia, and says, Hey guys, long time listener, first time emailer, I really enjoyed the recent episodes in hell and Helen was reminded of this fantastic song by a New Jersey metal band, Iced Earth. The song is about 14 minutes long and is full of melody, complexity, and well, metal. It conveys a sense of journey and mystery, and I challenge you to listen to it without headbanging. I hope you enjoy it as much as I have now over a decade. I include a YouTube uh, link, but again, you can just search for "iced uh, earth" and uh, hopefully find uh, this uh, this particular track. Uh, so I, it, it was interesting because uh, I love any kind of uh, uh, situation where a topic that we've covered uh, collides with music in any shape or form.
4: All right, yeah. so you got your your hell on.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think I, I maybe I was headbanging a little, you know?
4: I thought I saw you at your desk doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty sure.
3: I've I've taught uh, the toddler to uh, headbang a little bit.
4: Just yeah, pretty, how's that going?
3: Pretty good. He'll, he'll do it in the car. You know, he always, the, the <laughs> booty dancing came naturally to him. There's like It always does. Yeah, but the, I, I had to sort of show him that this is what you do if we're playing Black Sabbath in the car, that you're supposed to move your head. And uh, he seems to catch on. Hmm. Yeah. All right. See, maybe we should do an episode on the science of headbanging. What is that about? Mosh pits? What's that about? There's a whole like world of metal, uh, you know, and face melting that that needs to be you know researched. And, and you know, how about covered. the
4: hair? The physics of the hair? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Why, and what and how is the head banging different between the the long hair and the the shaved head? Like those are the two extremes. You don't see a lot of head banging in the the realms. You between. don't. Yeah.
4: I mean, how much momentum does that hair create anyway?
3: Yeah, which is better? And is there? What are the long term health effects? See. There's, it, something there. there's something there. And I there. bet
4: you, anyway, there, there's a study. I bet you <laughs> I, donuts to, be. to dollars. Yeah.
3: All right, here we have another one. Uh, we uh, When we when were talking about hell, we uh, brought up the um, the Buddhist hell theme park in Singapore. And since our listeners are based all over and travel all over, uh, inevitably we had a couple of different uh, uh, listeners write in about it. Uh, we heard from uh, Chen and we heard from Yong. Uh, about uh, the the theme park. And uh, they both sent us a bunch of pictures. Uh, Here are just a couple of quick uh, excerpts. Jen writes in and says, uh, hi, I'm a listener from Singapore. I recently became a huge fan of the show thanks to Neptina, my girlfriend. Recently, while I was sandwiched between sad, disgruntled office workers on my way to work, I was listening to the episode called Symbols on the Brain. And being from Singapore, your mentioning of the Hell theme park caught my attention immediately. That is not to say I paid no attention to the rest of the podcast. I remember visiting, uh, Hapar Villa when I was about seven years old. Boy, did it lead in, leave an impression. The Ten Courts of Hell was and continues to be the main attraction of the now-defunct theme park. As a kid, I wrongfully assumed that I was going to see animatronic dragons at this part of the park, since (laughs) the Ten Courts of Hell attraction was located inside a 60-foot-long dragon back then. After coming out of the place, I had bedwetting nightmares for two (laughs) weeks straight. So the 10 courts of hell work something like that. The first court of hell is basically the courtroom and it is believed that you go there when you die. There a judge called King Acquinyong will conduct a preliminary trial based on your past deeds. The good people get to go uh, get to pass on to the new life while the bad people will be assigned to different courts of hell. In subsequent courts things get a little interesting. For example, robbers are thrown into a volcanic pit. Prostitutes are thrown into a pool of blood and drowned, and ungrateful people have their hearts torn out. Drug addicts and tomb raiders, on the other hand, get tied to a red-hot copper pillar and burned alive. Other forms of punishments include being thrown onto a hill of knives, sawed in half, thrown into a pot of boiling oil, dismemberment, crushed under boulders, etc. In Ha Villa itself, you will see every Court of Hell in detail, complete with miniature clay figurines being tortured uh, for your or Lack of better words, viewing pleasure. Of course, Ha Par Villa is way more than that. Ha Par Villa was built in the 1930s by Ah Boon Ha, a wealthy businessman who loved his younger brother very much. Boon Ha grew up uh, a firm believer of Eastern ideologies and uh, values, while his younger brother uh, learned always, leaned always to the west. To remind his younger brother of his roots, Boon Ha built a theme park filled with Chinese mythologies, stories, and symbols. The Ten Courts of Hell is merely one of the many attractions in this theme park. There you will also see traditional Chinese mythologies brought to life via statues. In fact, speaking of symbols, the entire park has a lot of circular motifs built right into the architecture. From the top, you will see that the park is circular, which is supposed to symbolize harmony and the importance of family, a point at which the elder brother wanted the younger brother to remember. Hopper Villa gained a rather unsavory reputation over the years due to the grotesque nature of its exhibits and the fact that the statues uh, uh, were never crafted very well in the first place. Still, even though not very many people bother to visit it these days, it's one of those places that's so bad, it's good. You just have to see it to believe it. Anyway, you guys are one of the very few podcasts I listen to. Keep up the great work. I love your show.
4: Wow, we got an inside tour of that. Yeah. It is so I, I, I mean, that's wet my appetite for it even more.
3: Yeah, and I like how he, he, you know, he drew out that there's a, there's a lot more to it than just, uh, you know, the, the pictures that that may yeah. filter through to, to, uh, to Western viewers. Um, I mean, if, if, if I ever get the chance to, uh, to be in the same vicinity of it, I would, I obviously I would go. Oh yeah, It's a, a no brainer. Yeah.
4: All right. Whether, what other fresh hell do you have for us?
3: Uh we also heard from another uh listener uh, again uh this one came from Yong, talking about the the Buddhist Hell and uh, and he just wanted to mention that it was created by the founders of Tiger Balm and uh and that when when it was uh when it was built in 1937 it was originally called Tiger Balm Gardens but was changed to its current name in 1988 by the tourism board it says it's free to enter for anyone and there's even a subway station in front of it uh, it must have run out of funds or something because when I visited, it was in a state of disrepair, which might actually have helped enhance the creepy nature of the place. The areas show different levels or areas of hell and how sinners are punished in various graphic and gory ways. It's an interesting place to go for anyone visiting Singapore, if not for the creepy abandoned theme park experience, then for the educational value. Um, and then he includes uh, a number of images, uh, which were all fabulous. I love how he mentions that the run down aspect of it yeah. made it all the more creepy because uh as a, as an Atlanta resident uh reminds me of uh, the old uh, what what was the the ride at six Flags plantation mountain oh a uh, monster, monster plantation. plantation, yes,
4: one of my favorite rides,
3: yeah, and I understand they've redone it, and it's oh, probably no. they probably ruined it in the process, just my opinion because. It used to be awesome in the fact that it was falling apart, and yeah. then there was this musty stench in the air, and and there was, when you go through Monster Plantation, or when It's you a southern
4: it, gothic setup, by the yeah, way. Yeah, which
3: is already a little weird, and yeah. it's a plantation where there are monsters, and the first part of it is happy, and then there's like a scary part, and then... You're on a boat. Yeah, and you're on a little boat with, you know, undrinkable water uh, mm-hmm. around you, and the The scary part isn't really scary, but the happy part is like super creepy or was super creepy because the mm-hmm. the, the beings are, are animatronic. They're falling apart. Sometimes their metal skeletons are are showing through, and they're, it's just a creepy, uncanny well, experience. It's
4: like an old Southern lady in an antebellum gown animatronic. Yeah, and then you go into the scary part, and there was a big old sheriff. Like it's very much like Dukes of Hazard kind yeah. of, and he's like, "Don't go down there." <laughs> it's good stuff.
3: So, there's something I would like to hear for any of our, our local or Atlanta-based listeners, or anyone who's traveled there. Let me know what it's like now, because I don't actually
0: want to go. I just want to hear what yeah, it's I like. Know. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love.
4: All right, uh, let me see here. Arnie, do you have something for me? Oh, thank you. All right, uh, we had a, a good amount of emails about word aversion because everybody had an opinion about it. Either they didn't have a word aversion or they did, and they shared it with us, and it was really interesting. This
3: was the episode that you and Allison Lattermilk did yeah. uh, while I was yeah. away, and uh, I have to say it was a great episode, and it was n- interesting for me to get to listen to stuff to blow your mind and not know what was going to happen. Uh, oh, right, yeah.
4: right, because you didn't have any sort of like, oh, I don't have an outline on this. Yeah, I
3: didn't have an outline. I don't know what those know? crazy
4: kids are going to cover.
3: Yeah, so it, so it was a really cool episode.
4: Thanks. Well, thank you very much. Uh, well, this one is from Nando, and Nando says, I've been a listener for a while. I was listening to the word aversion episode, and even though I do not have a word aversion, I do have a word that I love saying, because we also talked about words
2: mm-hmm.
4: uh, that we are attracted to, and that word being the word mulch 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 i don't go around all day saying it but i do enjoy it a lot Uh, it is not only fun to hear but it also feels good in my mouth we talked about that in the podcast too like there's certain sort of satisfaction of it's almost like having marbles mulch in your mouth um i think that it's the sound that makes it so appealing to me anyway love the show keep up the good work Alright, and this one is from Chris says, uh hey Robert and Julie finally caught up on all the podcasts. Just want to say that the Allison episode on word aversion was excellent and that she and Julie did a great job. Old Robert is way. My weird word aversion kamikaze. A good word, but I thought it was pronounced differently as a kid, and when I found out the correct way, I became annoyed. To this day I tend to cringe whenever I see it. Oh it haunts me. Keep up the awesome work. Sorry for using awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about that as oh, being yeah, one of the yeah, words. Yeah. That kept landing on the list. Yeah,
3: because awesome is, is, like the word love, is far overused and so when we actually encounter something or imagine something that is Awe-inspiring. That is awesome in a, in a grander sense. The word fails to do it.
4: Yeah, you're like, I, I can't use that word. That's yeah. really the appropriate word, but now it's been watered down and I have yeah. nothing.
3: Like an angel of the Lord, like steps out of a UFO and starts handing out Twinkies and then splits the earth in half. Like that's an awesome sight, but you can't say it's awesome because you already said that the cup of coffee you had earlier in the day was awesome.
4: And and now that you've had this paranormal Twinkie episode, yeah. you just can't put the two in the same category.
3: I can definitely relate with her about the uh, the, the whole pronunciation thing because there have been words in the, in the past where like I grew up saying them weird or or even like for a very brief time. Like I remember when I first read Jurassic Park, I didn't know it was pronounced uh, Velociraptor, and I think I said Velociraptor, and uh, and then it was corrected on it, and mm-hmm. it's like I. I don't know, like in junior high or not even quite junior high. But still, the the word velociraptor, I'll remember the the pain of having to be corrected on its pronunciation.
4: Yeah, I'm still angry at detritus. Yeah? I want it to be detritus. Yeah? It just feels like it should be, but I'm... Very annoyed with the word as well. Um got one more on word aversion. This is from Francis. I was so surprised to see your word aversion podcast today. I had no idea there were others like me. There are. I never bring word aversion up in conversation because of the natural follow-up question. What words? And I don't want to say them. They are, for the most part, completely normal, everyday words that don't describe body parts or anything disgusting. But when I hear someone use one, it stops me completely. I have to digest what I just heard, consider the word, and it takes me a while to recover cover. The most mild one that I'm willing to write down is purse. Even that gave me a chill. And that is purse. the most mild of all the words that I don't say. I wish I could do the sentence thing. This was, we, we invited people to create their own sentences of, of words that mm-hmm. Were word aversive, um, but it would take me a long time to recover. I appreciated your sentence in the show, though some of the words, one in particular, is on my list, and so it made me shiver to hear it. This whole word thing is so ridiculous. My husband thinks I'm crazy, but it's very real, and I can't seem to flip that switch off. So in the meantime, I just speak in awkward sentences to avoid saying the bad words, sometimes very awkward sentences. Thanks for the great show. I listened intently and was really interested in learning more about this word aversion thing. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, Francis. That I mean, I, I sort of understand I, that there are certain trigger words, and you don't want to say it. And so there are certain words that I sometimes are just trepidatious about, and I end up having some sort of word salad coming out of my mouth. So I can sort of understand from a from mm-hmm. a limited perspective.
3: Speaking of which, uh, trepidatious, great word.
4: Yeah, it's a nice one.
3: I also like. There are a lot of great words I like, but uh...
4: what's your most favorite?
3: I don't know. Like, I was just thinking uh, gargantuan is a great word. Yeah. Golgotha. Like, anything, like, which, which, remembering that one stemmed from the other one. Like, any kind of word that has a kind of a rolling cadence to it, I, I really like.
4: I really like Calyptian.
3: Calyptean? Uh mm-hmm. ah, That's pretty good.
4: That's the, uh, mainly because it means well-formed buttocks. <laughs> what other word could, could uh, express such a sentiment?
3: Uh, it reminds me, cyclopean, I really like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many. But I... I don't know if it's really a word aversion or just a, a, an, an aversion to um, often our um, reluctance or inability to fully describe um, smells. Mm-hmm. And I've mentioned this before. I tend to dislike people saying something stinks, especially in reference to food, mm-hmm. in reference to cheeses that stink. It's quote-unquote stink if they say a stinky cheese. Mm-hmm. Like that tends to get to me because I feel like that's you, – you're describing food. You're describing something that doesn't – I mean, stink is just such a—it's a broadly applied word that doesn't actually convey any meaning. Like, uh, and I think we should use we, a. We should have a better vocabulary for for smells. And <laughs> and if and if we're going to talk about cheeses, especially in the uh, if there are children around and you you know you want to foster an idea that that all foods should at least be tried, then maybe that cheese is not so much stinky as it is uh, you know aromatic. Or pungent.
4: Okay, you need to team up Strong. with the odor artist, Cecil Tolas, yes. first of all.
3: Yeah, she's very much of the same mindset.
4: So second, you're pinning down a usage thing, but is there one word that just chills you to the marrow? Oh okay, what about vomit? I, I tend to like
3: vomit. Um I, I, How
4: could you love vomit? It I mean, shows I, I up on all the lists. I, I don't.
3: I mean, I don't like vomiting, and I don't like the substance of vomit. But it's a V word, and uh, and it rhymes with comet. It has a very, like, well, it for, does
4: have the plosive consonants going for it.
3: One of my favorite uh, names, uh, fictional names, is uh, there's a in Brian McNaughton's book Throne of Bones. There's a character. It's the king of the ghouls, and his name is Vomicron Noxus. Which uh, <laughs> so I love that name because it's taking uh, vomit and it's taking noxious and it's kind of twisting the words around and creating this new Is word.
4: Cron for a Kronos in it as well.
3: Yeah, there's a sense of that as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of an ancient and godly uh, stature to it. Uh, so I, I tend to really like fake words and fake names that, in, in fantasy and science fiction when they're well crafted, not when they're just sort of uh, you know mindless uh, Dungeons and Dragons sort of word salad where you just call you know some sort of vaguely tolkien esque, uh, you know, elf name or something. But um, I ha- really have a hard time thinking of any word that I dislike, just for the sake of the word. Maybe if I if I think about it, I'll share it in a future podcast episode. But so you
4: don't have a problem with moist?
3: It's not my go-to word, and I know that it annoys enough people that I I would probably not use it. Like okay. it's not really in my satchel of words, but it's it doesn't bother me.
4: Okay. All right. Well, we should probably wrap up because I need to go tend to this moist crevice. <laughs> Nothing.
3: Well, I know that you're using words you dislike in a sentence. So I,
4: I thought I saw you wince.
3: Yeah. Well, maybe a little bit, but still, it's not a not a strong, not a like a, you know a visceral reaction. So I'm gonna have to think. I'm All gonna right. just gonna have to be aware of myself. Listen and find that word that bothers me. In the
4: meantime, I'll try to drop as many. Drop as
3: many. As drop the whole list at me. Okay. You know, in, All right. in one sentence, if possible.
4: I know what I'm doing this week. Yeah. Yep.
3: All right. Well, there, there you go, Arnold. Do you feel better? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Feel a little more, more balanced, a little more healthy. Well, that's great. We will have to do this more often, and maybe even at the end of, of podcast episodes. And if for the rest of you, if you want to get in touch with us as well, you can find us online at com. That's the mothership. That's where everything can be found from our podcasts and our videos and our blog posts to links to our various social media accounts such as uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Mm -hmm. We're also, we're on YouTube, is Mind Stuff Show. And Julie, if they want to send us a good old fashioned email, how do they go about that? Oh,
4: well, it's very easy. All you have to do is compose an email, and then in the to area, the to field, you just put in stuff to blow your mind at
1: discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
2: the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.